August 20th, 2013, in Decatur, Georgia, Michael Harris, Michael Hill walked into the near Discovery Center in Decatur, armed with a rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, and as he put on social media, nothing to live for. 870 children were at McNear Learning Center that day, all of them between the ages of 5 and 11. As soon as he came into the building, he took a hostage. He didn't take a student. He didn't take a teacher. Instead, he took the school bookkeeper, Antoinette Tuff. Even though she was afraid for her life, Tuff calmly spoke to the mass shooter as one neighbor speaks to another for nearly a half hour. With ever raising her voice, she spoke to him with incredible empathy and love, and we know that because every word that she said to him was recorded by the 911 operator who was listening in. Her words during that time, and it caused her not only to be able to save her life and the life of every child and teacher in that school, but the life of the gunman as well. We're not going to hate you, she said. We're not going to allow that to happen. The gunman began to talk to her, and she shared with him stories of her own struggles, talking about her recent divorce, about the depression she had faced, about her son who had multiple disabilities. At one point in the 911 call, Tuff tells Hill, it's going to be all right, sweetie. I just want you to know, I love you. I am proud of you. That's a good thing that you're going to do. You're, when you give up, it's going to be a good thing. Don't worry about it. Everybody you see is going through something. No, 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 don't, don't do that. I thought the same thing. I tried to commit suicide last year after my husband left me. But look at me. I'm still working, and everything's okay. Michael Hill was armed with an AK-47. Antoinette Tuff was armed with a faith that was deeply rooted in the Lord. Recalling the incident to a journalist a few days later, she said, you know, my pastor had just started teaching on anchoring yourself and how to anchor yourself in the Lord. She said, I was terrified. I was screaming in my head. I didn't even know that I had been so calm until everybody told me how calm I'd been. I just sat there as soon as he came in and I started praying. God, help me love my neighbor as myself. I pray that everything that I had heard God say to me would be the only thing that would come out of my mouth. Eventually, while keeping all the police at a distance, she persuaded Michael Hill to lay on the floor, to give up his weapons, and eventually give himself up. Recalling the incident later, she said to the journalist, here's the line again, my pastor had just started teaching on anchoring himself and how you have to be anchored in the Lord. She was rooted, and she was ready. We've been in this series called Rooted for the last few weeks where we've been talking about the foundations of Christianity and it's so vitally needed in our world because we live in this world that's so incredibly divided and so incredibly like we're just waiting for a spark to set off a, a fire everywhere we go. I mean, the reason we're doing this series is because people continually say, I don't know what's truth and I don't know where to lead and I don't know where to lead into and I don't know who's telling the truth and in our world where it matters more that you're an influencer and that you're, you have a lot of people following you and people say, I don't know what to believe, but they sure do get a lot of views on their, on their YouTube, so I'll just believe whatever they say. Our culture where popularity has out, I mean, has replaced character 
in our world where you, you can do anything, but if a lot of people follow you, you somehow have credibility. Or putting your faith in someone that you don't know as trustworthy just seems to be everyday behavior. Not because they seem to be trustworthy, but because somebody gave them a big platform. I mean, look at how popular they are. They must know what they're talking about. In times like these, followers of Jesus, we must be rooted. And so for the last few weeks, we've been saying Christianity is not something founded because some pastor has a big platform or it matters so much what we say. In fact, the, the truths that come for Christianity, they've been taught for the last 2,000 years. And so we said, let's study this ancient text that has held us together, that pulled us back to the teachings of Scripture. It's called the Nicene Creed. It's been given to draw us back to the core truths of what Jesus and the apostles taught. And it's meant to unite Christians all around the world to pull them together so that we can stand in truth. And so if you've been with us, you know that we've already talked about our Father and this idea that he is the creator of all that's seen and all that's unseen. We've talked about Jesus, the Son, the Savior, the returning one who's coming for his own. We've learned about the Holy Spirit and how he breathes life into us and how he leads us in the right direction. But today... We come to a line in the creed that seems to be the one that is the biggest one to trip people up in our day. It's the line of the creed where we refer to the church as one holy church. In fact, I just want you to read this out loud with me. We believe in one holy, worldwide, and apostolic church. And we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when you read the first line, the part that may be hard for you is that part where we believe the church is one, and we believe the church is holy. I mean, the word, when you look around in our world, the idea that the church is united and the church is holy, you see those two words and you think, those can't possibly go together about the churches that I've known. I mean, is that like grape nuts? They're not grapes nor nuts. I mean... <laughs> I mean, what were they trying to say 1,700 years ago? How can you even believe that and say, how do I believe in the church? I thought I believed in God, and I believe in, I believe in Jesus. And I get it. And the reason I get it is because I've gone to church most of my life, and for the first part of my life, it was the church that drove me away from Jesus. For the early part of my life, when I didn't want anything to do with Jesus or the church, it was, it was what I had seen in the church growing up and the hypocrisy that I saw in the people that were leaders in the church that caused me a problem. But Jesus is so gracious, he found me, and he loves me and the church, it turns out. And he wanted me and the church to be together. And so for the last 40 years, one of the challenges has been I mean, when you've been around the church as long as I've been, one of the big challenges when you're around the church as long as I've been is it's easier to see the flaws than it is to see the good. It's way easier to be skeptical than it is to be hopeful. It's hard not to notice the shortcomings and the failures and the hurts and the pains. And I have people say to me all the time, man, I have been so hurt by the church, and I thought, you ought to be a pastor. Let me tell you about being hurt by the church. The things that people have said to me in love, the things that have been quoted to me that I just want to speak the truth in love to you, Pastor. There's sometimes I leave and I go, Jesus, I love you, but I don't know if I can take another day at the church. So if you're here today and you have some hurt from the church, 
I just want you to know I get it. And in community Christian, we always say you don't have to fake it. There is permission here to name it, and there is permission to become aware of even the ways that this church has failed. Yet as followers of Jesus, we can't let ourselves ever... I mean, if you're a true follower of Jesus, you can't ever begin to talk about the church as them or they. We have to talk about the church as us. And we, we are the church. We, it's not somebody else out there. That's why it's so important that we start this by reading, we believe in one holy, worldwide, apostolic church. And again, I don't find most people have much problem recognizing the connection between the church and the apostolic vision of the church when they read the Bible. In fact, many people go, I wish we'd just be like the church in the Bible. The church, which means they haven't read much about the church in the Bible. <laughs> I always want to say, which one? You know, some of those were not too good. And then they don't have any problem really recognizing there is one great worldwide church somewhere out there we can't name. I believe in that. The problem comes when they get to those two words again. One, united, and holy. Is the church really one? Is the church really united? And is the church really holy? And when you read the creed, I want you to notice something else, that as soon as you read about the church, the very next line is it talks about the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the very first time sin is ever brought up in the creed is when it talks about us. Well, that's not normal for the church. Normally when the church is the one talking about the sin out there. But 1,700 years ago, the first time that sin gets brought up, it just says, we believe in the one worldwide church. Oh, also, and the forgiveness of sins, because y'all going to need it. And one baptism, one baptism. The very first time it's mentioned, it's a connected to the church. We believe in the church. Therefore, we have to believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to notice that they agree with the apostles and what it talks about in the Bible, that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know what you were taught anywhere else, but that's what the apostle says, that's what the Bible says, and that's what the earliest writings of all the people that followed them said, that baptism, it's for the forgiveness of sins. We believe we are baptized into Jesus, and the earlier we believe, I mean, we already said that Jesus came for our salvation, and so the reason we're baptized, we're baptized into him for the cleansing of our sin and our forgiveness. Baptism is our identification with Jesus. We go down into the waters and we say, Jesus, like you were buried, I put myself to death and I rise to walk a new life with you. And I just want to say as clearly as I can, though, this is not the point of this message. If you have not taken that step after you believed in Jesus, I don't know why you're waiting. If you haven't taken this step, that is your next step. And maybe you need to sign up to go to that class today. and We can help you on that whole process to go to the next step, and we'll help you with this step as well. Baptism is where the Bible and all the ancient creeds say we identify with Jesus. And it's also in the waters of baptism that we get born into a new family. Baptism is where we make a statement to God, I am fully yours. And where we say to everyone else in the world, I am fully his. I fully belong to him. The life I have is his. And baptism is God's pronouncement back to me of the new reality that is true in my life. I am now a child of God, and I belong in the family of God. But like a wedding, 
When the two become one and somebody pronounces, now these two have become one, anybody that marries know that you made a choice to get married and somebody said it, but the two of y'all ain't one yet. That's going to take years and years and years of work. In fact, you spend the rest of your time married trying to figure out how the two of you can be one because she's just so stubborn. <laughs> it's the same way in the church. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the church must become what God has said we already are. He says we are one. We are holy. And we will spend the rest of our time together working with each other to become what he says we already are. The church is one, and the church is being made holy day by day with the work of the Spirit and with the work each other we do with each other, sharpening each other. We work together to figure out what it looks like for community Christians to become who we already are. So I want to start this time today with you having a moment to reflect on that, on the unity, and not about the unity of them and they, but we and us. So Jason is going to come and lead us in that time. You know, the unity that Ed is teaching on us, on us on today, the unity of the church, it's not a cheap kind of unity. It's not this unity based on all the things that we think unity is based on. In our lives, we, we think unity is based on the fact that, well, we're all Americans, or we all speak the same language, or we think alike, or we vote the same. The truth is, that kind of unity... Well, that's easy. But we are united because we're one in Christ. And even if we don't see eye to eye on everything, we're still one because of him. And so the Apostle Paul wrote about it like this when he wrote his letter to the church in Ephesus. He said, I want you to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And what he's saying there is that unity... It's already been accomplished by the Spirit. He's already made us one. So now our job is we preserve that. Unity has already been done. We have to preserve it. So we have to make every effort to preserve that unity. So today as we begin this time of reflection, I want us to read some of the words of Paul that remind us of who we are. And as we do around here at our church, you're going to see some words on the screen and some of them are going to be in bold, and I want to invite you to read the ones in bold out loud along with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's who we are. So would you take just a few moments of quiet and I want you to ask God to help this reality become real for you and real for our church. Let's do that now.
And now let's continue praying. We're going to read some more words of Paul. And these words are going to tell us how we keep the unity in the church. So again, read the words in bold with me. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, shouting anger, shouting and slander along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. Now, let's take a moment, and I want you to read back through that list. And as you do, I want you to ask God, God, are there things I need to get rid of, especially when it comes to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or maybe there is something you need to put on. Is there someone you need to show kindness, compassion, forgiveness to? Take these next moments and talk to God about it. Father, help us to make every effort to preserve the unity Jesus has already won for his church through his body and his blood. Help us to get rid of everything that divides us. And may we put on your kindness, your compassion, and your mercy. Teach us to forgive as you have forgiven us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Now we've talked about the church being united, but what does it mean that the church is holy? One of the great things about the way Paul writes is he acknowledges these two realities that sometimes could feel like opposites. He writes to the church in Corinth, to those who have been made holy to God in Christ Jesus, who are called to be God's people. Now, if that was all you read of the letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, you'd probably think, this has to be the best church ever. But when you keep reading the letter just a little bit longer, he says, my brothers and sisters, Chloe's people gave me some information about you that you are fighting with each other. Wait a minute, Paul, you just said this is God's church and that they are holy and you're telling us that they're fighting? Not just that, if you keep reading, he says, everyone has heard that there is sexual immorality among you. And this is a type of immorality that isn't even heard of among the Gentiles which he means people who don't even know our God. You want to say, how can all of that be true? They are God's holy church. And then you're calling them out for fighting and sexual immorality? Here's what I think Paul's doing. He's reminding them of who they are. They are holy in Christ. He is using that as a way to call them to become in practice who they actually are. Here's the truth. Most of us think that the holier someone gets, the meaner and more self-righteous they become. In most of our experience, holiness is a way for Christians to get on their high horse and talk down to people who don't believe like them. 
But what Paul is doing is what he wrote to a different church in a place called Ephesus. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Paul is calling these believers to imitate Jesus, but not just some fake it until you make it, behave better kind of way. Paul's calling them to live out who they actually are. It's about moving beyond believing the right things to actually trusting Jesus enough to do what he did, and in doing so, to become like Jesus. And this is the goal. This is why we do life together and invite others to join us. Even if you're not sure you believe in Jesus yet, begin walking towards him. And when you do get to the point where you can believe, you can put your trust in Jesus, then you don't stop there. We wanna to learn to live and love and forgive and serve like he does. And when you see this as the goal to become like Jesus, you can see why we say, we believe in one holy worldwide and apostolic church. We're not saying our faith is in the church. We're saying that we believe in Jesus, who is the head of the church, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, who gives life to the church. And if we want to keep living out our faith in Jesus, then we do so as part of the church. And not because we just like going to church on Sundays. If church is just a hobby, something to do on the weekends, we really need better hobbies. The reason that we join together in the church is because we trust Jesus and we want to do what he's doing. And what Jesus is doing is building his church. Often when people say they want to be in the center of what God is doing in our world, we imagine that what God is doing is somewhere out there, not in here. But what God is doing in the world is building a church. He's forming a people. The very center of God's activity in the world is in and through his church, which is why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't overcome it. The church is not just some human idea. If it were, then it would have fallen apart like every other human movement throughout history. With all of its flaws and imperfection, with all of those who've been hurt and damaged by church people throughout history, how could the church ever survive? It is because it's the Father, Son, and Spirit who are building us together as the family of God, and nothing in this world can overcome that. Molly said this, and I just want to say it again, you know, the, the idea that we believe in the church because Jesus is in the church. And the Holy Spirit is empowering the church. And at the very center of what God is doing in the world, God's building His church. You want to be involved in what God is doing in the world, God, God is doing the church. That's what He's doing in this era of history. And I get why with all the scandals that have gone on in the church in my lifetime, the amount of things that I've had to explain and apologize for that I had nothing to do with, what's gone on in other parts of the world, and I get why people say, I just can't do the church. I love Jesus, but I just can't do a church. I mean, the number of times people have said to me, Jesus didn't even come to start a religion. And I'll say, well, you know, that, that's true, but Jesus did say that he came to build something. And the one thing he said he came to build was not you. He said he came to build the church and that the gates of hell would not stand against the church. What God is doing in the world is the church. And no matter what happens in the world, God is going... I mean, it's not like Jesus came at the end of time and stands with his disciples just before he goes to heaven and says, hey, go and make disciples and I'll be with you to the very end. And as he's going up to heaven, goes, and oh, by the way, it might be a good idea if you guys started a club or something. <laughs> he said, I'm going to build my church. I'm the one that's going to do it. 
And that's the last thing I want to say to you about the church. The church, as flawed as it is, we belong to God. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. We belong to Him. We were meant to be one and we were meant to be holy, but at the end of the day, this church and the church worldwide, apostolic church, it belongs to God. The church does not belong to us. My granddaughters will occasionally say to me when they're roaming around, because they're just not old enough to understand, they're like, Papa, you own the church, right? I'm going, I do not own the church. I do not own the church. I know, but you're in charge. I'm not in charge. Jesus is in charge. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. As I was reading, trying to think of how to teach this, because I don't think I've ever taught this the way I wanted to teach it to you today. I was trying to read through some of the stuff that's being said these days because the, the church in America, it, there's a book out right now, it's called The Great Dechurching of the United States. Because we're just becoming this dechurched nation. People saying they belong to Jesus, but they don't belong to the church, which is really hard to stay, understand because he doesn't get that. He just doesn't understand it. And one of the seminary professors that I was reading says that a lot of times his young seminary students will say to him, you know, maybe it'd just be a better idea if we just didn't do church anymore and we just, we just started a whole other idea to accomplish what Jesus wants to accomplish anyway, but the church has just been, it's just too much for the current state of the, in our country. And he says, I'll always say to my students, what is it you think you see in the church that Jesus doesn't see? Do you not think Jesus sees that our church in the United States has gotten corrupted by how we've decided we will marry the church with politics of the U.S.? Do you think Jesus doesn't see that? He sees that. Do you not think that Jesus sees how the church has just adopted whatever values our culture adopts and that the church just says whatever the culture does is okay? Do you think he not see that? He sees that. Maybe the question you ought to be asking yourself is not what do I see that Jesus doesn't see. Maybe you ought to be asking yourself, what does Jesus see in the church that I don't see? What does he see that he said it would last and the gates of hell would not prevail against it? What does he see? Maybe he sees that in a divided world like us, ours, what the world needs is a united church made up of all different backgrounds, of different races and different ethnicities, of people from around the world, of people who come together in spite of their political backgrounds, and we come together and we are united and holy. Maybe he sees that what our world needs is an example, not someone to tell them they're wrong. Maybe he sees his bride that he gave his life to. And sometimes I sit with people and they'll say, man, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And I just want to say to them, I know, I understand. But could it be that you're ready to walk away from the bride of Christ? And when you walk away from the bride, you also have to leave the groom. That when you walk away from the bride, you don't get to keep the groom just for yourself. And could it be that you're walking away from the church because of what a pastor or a person in the church did for you, and you're not even upset with the whole church because your view of the church is just too small. I find that for most people, their, their view of the church is just so personal, and maybe even for many of you, I mean, for many of you, Community Christian is the only church you know, and 
or the church in Coweta County is all you know, or the church in the United States is all you know, or maybe there's some other church that you went to at some point and you stay in the church because of that. But you know that when Jesus sees the church, Jesus sees the worldwide church. He loves the church as a whole. And what I wanted to try to do in just the next minute or two is to try to give you a glimpse of maybe what Jesus sees that you don't see. There's some research that's been recently done by a young lady named Gina Zerlo from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. She said that in 1900, 18% of the world's Christians lived in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. In other words, only 18% of Christians in the world lived outside of North and South America. But she said, today the figure of those outside of North and South America is 67% of all Christians in the world don't live here. 67% of all the Christians in the world don't live here. By 2050, it'll be 77% of all the Christians in the world do not live here. Here's something that might surprise you. If I had to ask you what's the continent that has the most Christians in the world on it right now, how many of you would have guessed Africa? Africa has the largest group of Christians anywhere in the world. 27% of the world's Christianity, or 2.7 billion Christians, live in Africa today. It's the largest share. By 2050, that figure will be 39%. For comparison, the United States and Canada was home to 11% of Christians in the world in 2020 and predicted if we stay at the same rate, we'll only be 8% of the world's Christians in 2050. Now, most likely, I won't be around here in 2050 to remind you about this. And those of you who get upset anytime I say I'm old in a message, if I'm here in 2050, I will be so old in 2050. <laughs> but I'm praying that God will use this church and churches like ours in the U.S. and we'll change that stat here. We want to see the family of God grow in our country, don't we? But this trend that's happening in the world as more people come to faith, that's a really good thing. No wonder Jesus loves his church. If you had to sum up all the Christianity in the world and say it's characterized by one woman, and that's the way to say it, the average person the average Christian alive in the world today is a 20-something-year-old African woman. And so when somebody says, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, well, maybe you just haven't looked at the whole church. And maybe you're romanticizing it or you're demonizing it by some small part, and you need to get your eyes on the worldwide church that Jesus loves. But really, I think there's only one appropriate response to us in the way that so many people in our country feel about the church, particularly when they think about us not being one or being holy, our response is, we badly need to repent. Because we cannot point fingers and say, we talk about the church, as I said earlier, as a them or a they. It's we and us that represents Jesus in our community, in our country, in our world. We need to start with ourselves saying to God, God, where am I? What have I contributed to the lack of unity that you see in our country? Where am I contributing to the lack of holiness? Where have I in my own life caused people to distrust you because of the way I live? 
And there's no better t time to do that kind of work than when we come before the Lord's table and we remember that he gave his life for us. So as we come together today at the table, I want to ask you to do some personal moments of reflection on that, but then would you pray at the end of it, God, would you make us one? For your gain and your glory, God, would you make us holy? God, would you do it for your namesake? Do you realize Jesus staked his name, his name he staked on us? He tied his reputation to us. He's not abandoning the church, and neither should we. We are not perfect, but he knows we are united and holy. In fact, as I was thinking about this and how to end this, I thought, I know for sure that the truth is that when you stay in one place for 33 years with as many people who have come through Community Christian through 33 years, that somewhere somebody in this country and probably in this county, I am the villain in somebody's church hurt story. That I'm the one that when they tell their story of how the church hurt, I'm the one whose name gets mentioned. And somewhere along the way, I know I've caused pain. And maybe you, you've been gracious enough to stay here in spite of that. And if there's something I can do to make that right, I want to make it right. So talk to me. Give me a chance. But as we come to the table today, let's turn our, our eyes to the only hope we have. And his name is Jesus. And Jason is going to come and lead us to the table. Thank you.